my name is Justin. I'm joined here by Eric and Logan. Eric, say hello. Hey, everybody. How you doing? And Logan. Hi, everyone. Who are you? What do you do? And whatever else. <laughs> I love it. First, I'm super excited to be here. I think when I was originally reached out to you to come on this podcast, I actually didn't know about the Sustained Podcast. And I sort of shaken my boots saying that now, but I, since I've been invited, I've watched a ton of episodes and, and actually love it. So I appreciate so much the, the opportunity to come on and, and get to connect with both of you. But at the present moment, I'm the community manager for the Julia programming language. I'm also a board member of, of NUM Focus. That is a sustained exclusive has not been announced yet, but hopefully uh, will be announced in the next couple of weeks. A sustained exclusive. So you've been listening. Did you listen to the John O'Bacon episode? Yes, I am actually a huge fan of John. O. I have people powered right here. So quick plug for John's book. It's excellent. He's incredible. And somebody that I haven't met before, but have just been sort of observing and, and watching his work for a while now. So yeah, uh, for fan. those who haven't heard the episode, it's episode 84. So I saw on Twitter that you are a fan and I do agree. I'm going to actually watch some of his YouTube videos this week because I'm having some open source community issues, but we'll go into that for another day. So, okay, let's talk about real quick NumFocus. We've had Leah Silen, who's the executive director. I guess you will be working with her a lot on this project. And how did that all come to be? Leah is incredible. And again, another person who I definitely look up to in the open source space. It's incredible to get to spend my time working with her. I've just sort of been involved in the Julia community for a few years now. And Julia, if folks don't know, is a NumFocused fiscally sponsored project. So the open source project itself and all the legal and financial stuff is managed through NumFocus. And, and that was sort of my exposure to NumFocus as an organization. And within the last few months, got more involved in helping out in other capacities on the Small Development Grants Committee and the Affiliate Project Selection Committee. So getting more sort of exposure to various projects, ecosystems, and all that good stuff. So it's been a ton of fun, and, and I'm really excited to, to continue to help uh, support that organization. They're, they're doing incredible work. For the listeners that don't know, can you dig a little bit into Julia as a programming language and why it's unique and special? Julia as a programming language was really designed and created to help solve the two-language problem. And if folks aren't familiar with the two-language problem, it's the, the general gist is that you know if you want to use a, a language, and this is in general, and I don't mean to offend people who are perhaps lovers of Python or something like that. So, But if you want to use Python to solve a, a really computationally intensive problem, what folks will usually do, and you actually see this in the machine learning world a lot with frameworks like PyTorch, for example, but if you want to solve a problem using Python, you generally sort of write the code initially, prototype it in Python. And then when you want to go and deploy into a production setting where speed is super important, you rewrite your code in something like C++. And this is sort of just a, a very common problem that folks run into. Takes a lot of resources, takes a lot of time. And, and Julia was sort of created to help fix this and enable developers to have more productivity when they're solving really computationally intensive problems. Your background. Did you get in pretty early in the project or how long has Julia been around? So the Julia project, it kicked off in 2012. And I would say there was a lot of people who really enjoyed using Julia in the beginning years. But I think really around the 1.0 release in 20. 
I think it was 2018 is where things really started to explode from my perspective, at least. And I started using Julia back in 2017, was predominantly a, a user of the language, was doing no, you know, was not contributing to open source, hadn't sort of made my way into that realm yet. But that was my sort of first experience was using Julia just as a user. It came out of MIT, if I remember correctly. Yeah, a bunch of folks at MIT and MIT originally housed a lot of the infrastructure for the Julia language. That makes sense. Okay. And then in 2020, you had around 24 million downloads from my notes. That's a lot. Yeah. The estimate right now is something like a million developers or something like that, which is a million users. I'm not sure how many of them are actively developing, but yeah, big number, but again, still really small in the context of other programming languages. You can sort of see this if you look at some of the data on Stack Overflow, where it's like 36% of all code in existence is Python code, which is just mind boggling. And, and Julia is a rounding error compared to Python right now. Well, it's interesting because it does play nice with Python, which has a very large audience. But here's the coolest thing that I'm seeing is you're seeing these libraries like Makey. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, which on your Twitter, I saw there's like this globe of the earth spinning. Like it is so beautiful. And I'm like, wait, I didn't know Julia could do that. I thought it was just like a low level language that you just run in your terminal. But I mean, when I saw that, I was like, Oh, I get why it's always pretty much once a month I see a Julia post on HN because it's just blowing up. So yeah, it's really cool to see that. And I also know that you have like a partnership with ML Hacks. How is that working? So Major League Hacking is an incredible organization and they were sort of generous enough in the first iteration of the MLH Fellowship, which is just an opportunity for students to contribute to open source and get paid to do it by Major League Hacking and a bunch of peripheral organizations who support Major League Hacking. We were lucky enough, and I think last summer was the first time this happened, to have a pod of students specifically working on Julia projects across the entire ecosystem. So not just specifically the language and working on the core development of language, but things all over the place, differential equation stuff, whatever those individual students were interested in, we helped facilitate that. So Incredible. MLH has been awesome. And they're, again, they're strong supporters of, of open source. So it's always great to work with them. Yeah. I worked with them at Sticker Mule when I was working at Sticker Mule and they were just a great team. But Nick, shout out to Nick if you're still there. But yeah, it was uh, really awesome stuff they're doing with just the college scene and getting new folks that are into programming to new languages like Julia. So yeah, I'm so glad to see that. And is that have anything to do with the NumFocus or is that completely different? I'll remark initially that the Julia language and MLH don't actually have any sort of partnership. They're sort of, again, just a supporter of open source. And, and they were kind enough when I reached out to them and said, hey, it would be really awesome to get some Julia projects as part of the MLH fellowship. They were like, sure, this would be incredible. Seems like you've got some interesting stuff going on. So no sort of official partnership between them and us or them and, and NumFocus, but again, a great organization and, and lots of, of awesome people there. Yeah, I agree. Backing up a little bit, what really made me want to meet with you on the podcast is the non-technical initiatives that you're a part of. And even though you are very technical, you also advocate for those who are not that technical because there's so many non-technical jobs in open source that need to be filled. So 
What is your Julia day-to-day task that you work on if it's day-to-day or whenever you work on it? What's like your non-technical task so we can maybe influence the next non-technical open source contributor? Yeah, that's a great question, Justin. And I also saw that you have something around non-technical contributions in a newsletter that you're putting out, if I'm correct. Oh yeah, you are on it. Yes. Quick plug. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's been great. So it's super excited to see that and, and hopefully others will benefit from that. I think my sort of general goal that has just come out recently for me is to make people understand that a non-technical contribution in open source is a viable way of contributing. And it's also a ton of fun. Like I think for me, I enjoyed it a lot. And again, I have a technical background, so I can go and contribute code to a repository. But a lot of the times, what I'm most interested in doing in open source is non-technical. And the reason for that is I feel like there's more opportunities to do those non-technical contributions. And there's more sort of missing pieces in the non-technical space. I mean, surely there's a lot of technical stuff that needs to happen in, in a lot of open source projects, but that's oftentimes where the focus is. And there's not really a focus around these non-technical areas. I'll also remark that when I initially got involved as the community manager for the Julia language, the thought of doing non-technical contributions, it wasn't a choice for me. It was something that had to happen because of the company that I was working at full-time. So you know, it's just the serendipity of life. Initially, I was like, this is terrible. I can't go and contribute open source code in a technical capacity. And really not being able to do that opened my eyes to this whole other realm of contributions, which are non-technical. So I'm still upset that about not being able to make technical contributions, but it's still awesome that I had the opportunity to see the light in, in that sense. And from a day-to-day perspective, again, something that's super interesting about non-technical contributions that it's all over the place. Some days I'm helping out our Google Summer of Code students and making sure they have the things that they need in order to succeed over the summer with the Julia language. Some days I'm making YouTube thumbnails. Some days I'm helping facilitate JuliaCon, which is the annual Julia conference that just wrapped up. And just doing a lot of the work that, again, I think there's so much non-technical work that if someone doesn't step up and do it, it doesn't get done. And I love that work. Like To me, that's the most rewarding and exciting stuff, being able to do the work. And, and again, if no one else is doing it, it's not getting done. And, and that's, that's super exciting to me. I see that as a huge opportunity. Well, I think... You saying that is actually really powerful because I think a lot of non-technical or non-code contributions or contributors kind of have this like weird stigma to them. I don't know why. It's just, it's what it is. For instance, I did a panel talk at GitHub Universe like around 2016 and the video was posted. And one of the comments was, so all these people don't, contribute code. They just do blah, blah. And I'm like, yep. (laughs) I was just like straight up. Yeah, that's what we do. And it was just, I don't mind it. But the thing that really bugs me is other people might be discouraged. And seeing you who has accomplished so much in the open source community and your career, just saying, yeah, you know what? I can make it commits to the main branch, but there's other stuff that needs to get done in order to grow the language. You know, we need the YouTube thumbnails, all these little things that really add up. And I think it's really, really important. What tools are you using to kind of monitor your community engagement? 
we are not making use of a ton of different tools right now. I think in general, we have a traditional stack as far as the community goes. But what I think is so interesting about community manager roles is it feels like that role in a different context at every different company or organization is completely different. Like I interviewed for a a job to be a community manager and what they were asking and and some of the questions, I was like, oh, this is interesting because this is not the stuff that I do on a day-to-day basis. I have conversations with people all the time. When people ask me questions, sometimes I'm like, maybe I'm not a community manager. Maybe, Maybe I have some other... There's a better way to define what I do. And it's really just doing the work that needs to get done that there isn't someone else to do. And if that sort of bundles into a lot of this times stuff that's involved with the community, because there's not someone dedicated there to make sure that these things exist. But again, we don't make good use of, of a lot of metrics. I think the way that we've been sort of judging the success right now is the number of contributors in general, the number of people downloading Julia, but we really haven't honed in on like specific metrics for the community so far. So I'd love to hear if there's things that you both think would be important or interesting to look at. I think the other piece too, is that the Julia community right now is relatively small, such that it doesn't feel like we need to be monitoring that. Like I I sort of get, and maybe this is wrong and maybe this is a blind spot for me, but I sort of get the sense that things are going well and, and I don't need to like check in on what the numbers are because everybody generally seems happy in a lot of cases. So again, maybe that's a blind spot. So I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I think for me, the project that I'm working on, it's very small in terms of adopters because it's very new, but I use Orbit and Orbit's a really powerful tool in terms of finding out what people are doing with your platform. For instance, each morning I take a look at our stats and I see what new contributions have been you know, going up or been happening. It could be Slack, it could be Discord, it could be GitHub. And it basically links those contacts together so I can go and see, oh, okay, Gabriel has made this commit, this issue, and he's also on Slack. So I got to give him attention because he's a possible user. Another thing with monitoring your stats, you can't improve what you don't know. And well, Julia, you could see from a distance how cool things are coming, like things that are happening. So for instance, the Makey library, the visual plotting tool, the constant hacker news post, that's cool. But what are you missing? What is falling through the cracks? You know, and when you have a million different users, not all are being active in the community, but yeah, not to overwhelm you, but it's just good to know what's happening because lately I've been having mad GitHub notification issues. Like I am not getting GitHub notifications issues. I've been trying to figure out what the heck's going on, but luckily I caught it in orbit because it shows you who's active for that day. And I was like, I would have totally missed that if it wasn't for thing. Also, let me just be very clear. I know the guys who made Orbit, but they don't pay me. They don't do any of that. They make my job easier. So that's why I talk about them a lot. So Eric, you know, Patrick, remember he he was telling us about it in San Francisco? I do remember. I do remember. Super nice guy. Great product. It's evolved very well. So 
first off, I got to say, like, just on a personal level, I keep looking at you and I see my brother. Like, you're like a better looking version of my brother. So I keep, I'm getting tripped out when I'm talking to you because like, <laughs> you've seen my brother, except he's just better looking. So I'm like, oh, all right, cool. I would love to hear about your experience when you were working with NASA. NASA is awesome. And everyone loves to, to hear and, and, and talk about NASA. So definitely would, would love to share about that. So I, I started at NASA actually while I was at community college. So I was lucky enough. My first, I think it was after a year and a half at community college, I had just decided, you know, NASA is something that I wanted to do. And it was something that was really interesting to me. And I started just reaching out to people on LinkedIn who worked at NASA. And I was like, hey, you know, would really be interested in hearing more about the work that you're doing and coming in and chatting and also applied for a bunch of internships through the the NASA internship site. And Nothing really transpired there, but eventually, randomly, three months after I had sent someone a message, they responded on LinkedIn. They're like, hey, you're interested in the research that I'm doing? Why don't you come in and we'll talk about it? And I went in and talked to them and they were like, yeah, we'd, we'd love to have you on board. And I was like, this is the craziest experience ever and was lucky enough to get involved doing some data analysis for some of the, the satellites that had launched at the time in 2017 and ended up transitioning off of that team. And Again, getting lucky enough, randomly getting an offer to, to do another internship at NASA. And that was ultimately the team that I went on to that was using Julia. And then that sort of just set the, the course for the last you know, two or three years of my life. Whenever I'm talking to people about applying for things or opportunities in life, it's never the things that you think are going to take you places that end up taking you places. So it's interesting. And NASA was such a cool experience to see the on a personal note, to see the dedication that the people who work at NASA put into the projects. Like, for example, a lot of the folks that I worked with, these missions have super long lead up times, like, you know, four or five, six years, maybe. In one example, a, a 40, 50 day lunar rover mission. And you're just like, six years for 60 days? That's such a crazy trade off. And these people go in every day and they're working incredibly hard to make that come true. And Again, my hat is always off to the people at NASA who are putting in that incredible amount of work to make all the cool science stuff that we love happen. And they're also using a ton of open source, which is <laughs> independently is, is cool and, and interesting. All the Mars helicopter stuff that's transpired in the last year has been awesome to see it. I don't mean to brag, but apparently some commit I made made it on the Mars rover. So that's awesome. Yeah, I don't have just... the Mars rover accolade yet. So I need to figure out, I think it's like, F plus or F sharp or something is what they're using. Yeah, I know what it was. It was a bootstrap. It was like a markdown file that I edited and I got the Mars thing. So shh, don't tell me what. <laughs> okay, so you're a graduate student studying software engineering as well as technology law. You got the board coming up. You have the community position at Julia Lang. How do you find time to do anything? I mean, is there like four of you? Like what's going on? I know it's not really open source related, but I think it's important because I want to learn how to divvy up my time like you do. I wish there was a, a secret or something like that. I think really truthfully for me at this point in my life, you know, I don't have a ton of other commitments. I don't have a family I have to take care of. I don't have a kids or anything like that. The last year and a half has been a global pandemic, so there was not much else to do. So really just been trying to take advantage of, of the time that I've had to do things that are interesting to me. And I think that's really what it all stems from. I have such a hard time 
when I find something that's really interesting, not getting involved in it, which is a detriment to me in a lot of cases, because I have so much stuff that I need to get done all the time. But again, I think that's what keeps life interesting to me is, is all the new cool stuff that I see on the horizon and trying to get involved as, as much as possible. So I don't know the, the secret, but one thing, go to sleep early, wake up early. That's the that's one it. possible secret. Okay. I'll take it. Now you love reading research papers, right? No, I don't no. read research papers. Oh, <laughs> why? I read research papers in different contexts, but I think there's a bunch of personal challenges that I have with research papers. One of which is a lot of the times folks don't release their code, which is sort of one of the missions of NumFocus and in a sense, open code equals better science. That's what the shirt says. And I love that quote because it's so true. If someone can't see your code, they can't validate the science that you're putting forward. And therefore, it's not clear what the true value of that is. The other piece is research papers. A lot of times people who, even people who do release code, like on paperswithcode.com, they don't have licenses that are associated with that code. So it becomes, at least in my mind right now, it's a gray area as far as could this be in the public domain? Therefore, it's usable to me in a corporate slash personal context, or does it require that they add a license in? So I've been messaging the people at Papers with Code, trying to get them to add in a feature to only show repositories that have licenses associated with them, but they have yet to see my messages. So hopefully, maybe if any Papers with Code people at the Facebook AI Research Lab see this, add in that feature for us. I think it'll be very helpful. Wait, Facebook is like a leader in open source. Do they have an OSPO? Like, what's going on here? Maybe I'm wrong about that. I haven't seen an OSPO for Facebook, but to my understanding, they bought or hired the people who run papers with code. And now that's part of an arm of Facebook. Got it. Well, that's unfortunate. We'll keep emailing them because it's so important. If there is no license, it's just source available and nothing really can be done with that. So... Yeah, that's a bummer, but I, di- I disagree with that. I mean, the source available means that you can learn. And even if you can't reproduce, you can still learn from it. Also, it allows confidence in what you're saying with the paper. I guess I'm kind of curious, though, the research papers or the way that you... So Julia as a language is typically used for processing and computing mass of data. And I'm understanding that correctly, right? I think that's part of it. I think more generally, Julia is used for science. So if it's science, Julia is well-suited for it, whatever the domain and and specific application. Got it. And these research papers that we're talking about, is this very much like any type of science paper that would go around? I don't know a lot about them, but I watched House, so I kind of know about them a little bit. (laughs) So if that's the case, I'm very surprised that the code didn't get included in most of these anyway. So are people not sharing the code for reasons that they don't want to give up like intellectual property or just these thoughts that like, this is not completely well-formed. I just want to own it, but I still want to share something. Can you explain a little bit about what that world is like? Again, I'll make the disclaimer initially that this is from my perspective. I'm not an academic, so I don't have sort of firsthand experience of what this is like for these people. My sort of personal take is I see a sort of divide in research papers when I look at people publishing something, for instance, in the machine learning space coming from an academic setting versus people who build open source software, writing academic papers about how they're using, because I think 
we all perhaps know that the people who are writing open source software oftentimes are writing that because they have some other thing that they need that open source software to use. And those people oftentimes when they write research papers, they go and release the code. They go and perhaps put a license on it or something like that. But it's in the academic settings that I see these papers come out where they might have code, there might not be a license. And in that case, it's sort of wishy-washy to me whether or not the argument about intellectual property would come into play because you're working at potentially you know publicly funded university, even if it's privately funded. I'm sure the goal of the university is to advance scientific understanding of the world or, or whatever it might be. So I think it's a disconnect between the open source community and, and perhaps a lot of the academic community. One of the good things, though, that I see is the bridge between the two seems to be being built or the gap seems to be closing. A lot of PhD people are now becoming deeply ingrained in the open source community. And I see that all the time in the Julia community. There's a ton of incredible people. I'm like, there's a gentleman who just won the Julia Community Prize that was announced at JuliaCon. And he's a MD, PhD student at Brown University. And I'm like, how do you have this much time to do open source stuff? Like, it, it doesn't make sense to me. I'm like, you're becoming both kinds of doctors. And he like helps run like the infrastructure for our registry, the general package registry and all this other crazy stuff. I'm like, it's incredibly impressive. And it's super interesting to see people like that making those sort of contributions. So you manage the community. And so is the community basically held on Slack or where can you find your community? Yeah. So the Julia community is in a bunch of different places right now. So I think the sort of foremost place where most people in the community sort of spend some time is on discourse. So we have a big active discourse workspace. And then we do have a Slack instance. We do have a Zulip instance. We do have a Discord instance. And, and I think right now the challenge is the sort of first mover problem where we the community sort of started on Slack. And we've been free Slack users for a long time. That 10,000 message limit now goes away, resets everyone's messages in probably like two or three days, which is a huge problem. So we really should not be on Slack. And this is one of the sort of most contentious problems, I think, in the community. And it's, I think, the situations where I've learned the most about managing communities and being part of communities and helping a community grow. Like To me, it's 100% evident and perfectly clear that we should not be using Slack. Like Slack is a tool that is built for corporations to communicate with one another it is not a tool for open source projects to be using. There's no moderation built in. You can't block people. You only get 10,000 messages. You pay per month per user with sort of an unlimited upscaling. If we get a million Julia users in the next six months, we don't have a million dollars to pay $1 per user per month on Slack. Like It just doesn't scale to the level that we want to. So there's a ton of challenges. Yeah, I can completely understand that. What solutions are there? Us older developers, like, before Slack was around, we all used IRC. It was a terrible UI experience, a terrible UX experience to a point, but it's also like the really old reliable solution that I think some companies are still supporting. But IRC seems to kind of lost its favor with the developer community. Slack is definitely, and I agree with you 100%, Slack is a for-profit company that is trying to cater to those that are paying the money. So the question is, like, what is there that we can use that people would adopt? Or are we in this weird like puberty stage where you know our voice is still cracking or we need to look good 
And maybe in three or four years, we'll have something that makes us look good. Yeah, I will remark that I think as an enterprise tool, I think Slack does a good job. Like it, it, I've used it in an enterprise context. It solves the problem. It works well. Communication is as synchronous as it can be via text. But I, again, I think in the open source space, Eric, what you just alluded to probably hits it on the head. I think we're moving in the right direction, but I don't think there's enough general people on board yet with some of these other existing tools. I think a lot of them are building momentum. Like Zulip is a great example. It's a it's an open source alternative to Slack and it's free for open source projects and it's you get unlimited message history, all these cool features. Again, you know, there's some UI challenges there. People don't like the UI as much or or whatever it might be, but I think those are all gaining steam. I think Discord, again, it is a for-profit company, but they have unlimited message history. They just introduced threads in the last week, which is one of the huge reasons people weren't using it before. And they also have a really great set of tools for moderation, for community management. They have all the bot integration, all that cool stuff happening on Discord. So in my personal opinion, Discord and Zulip will probably be the two that are fighting each other in the future with respect to places that that communities go and meet. Another cool one, Forum. Haven't tried out Forum yet, but it's something that I've seen. I think the code newbie community is using it, which is a massive community. So interested to see what the success on that platform looks like for them. Is there anything that we didn't cover that would be bad if we didn't talk about? I think the only other thing, and this goes back to the the conversation we were having before about open source contributions and and non-technical contributions, but I think something that is perhaps might be obvious to some people, might not be obvious to some people, but really non-technical contributions, in my opinion, are the pathway to making a code contribution. Like it, And I think Jono does a great job of sort of depicting similar ideas in his book about the sort of arc of contributors and things like that. But you know, I see the arc including non-technical contributions. Like for myself, you know, despite the fact that I'm technical, when I look at a lot of open source projects and even the core Julia language itself, like there's a lot of deep technology stuff that I just don't understand. And I need to understand those pieces if I want to get to the point where I can make that meaningful technical contribution. So I do think that sort of my hope for me personally and for other people is that they can use these non-technical avenues to eventually get to the point where they're comfortable and have the capacity to make a, a code contribution to some open source project. It's fantastic. What was that Jono book again? People Powered by Jono okay. Bacon. And I do get a $5 kickback for every person who buys the book. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm ordering it on my Audible. I- it is a really good book. Honestly, well-crafted and it's like a basically a workbook. The problem I have is I'm always reading it at like the end of the day. It's like 8.45, 9 o'clock. And I'm like, all these new ideas. I'm like, crap, I got to start writing some of this stuff down yeah. because it's just too many good ideas and, and suggestions about building communities. Awesome. Well, any people you want to give a shout out to or... I think I'm good. I think my parting suggestion for people that, mm-hmm. that I always try to instill whenever I have the opportunity to talk to people that I don't know through the internet is take the opportunities to reach out to folks that you don't know if there's opportunities that are interesting to you. I think all of the cool things that have happened in my life so far have been because I reached out to people and sort of didn't worry about what the consequence of me reaching out to them would be. But NASA 
as an example, my internship there, being the community manager for the Julia language, I literally emailed the people who started the Julia project and was like, hey, really be interested in some sort of official capacity helping make educational resources for people. And they were like, yeah, this is great. We've been looking for someone to do that. And it was like three emails and a Zoom call and the rest is history. So take the opportunities, use the internet, reach out to people, cool stuff will happen. I love it. And now spotlight. Logan, what you got? So my spotlight, and Justin, you alluded to it a couple of times, is the tool Julia visualization package called, I think it's called Maki, even though you were pronouncing it. I always call it Maki, but the, I talked to the creator and he was like, it's Maki because it's, it has Japanese origins. The tool is Maki. Really great people. That was one of the first open source packages that I made technical contributions to. So it, it has a special place in my heart and all the maintainers of that package were were really welcoming and and super helpful. So shout out to Maki.jl. Eric, what you got? Yeah, there's a a suite of tools that I've been using lately that I really enjoy. And it's provided through this app called SetApp. SetApp is basically the Netflix of applications for your Mac. So if you do have a Mac and you're a developer, instead of going out and buying the 30 apps that you might need, you can just set up a subscription with this thing and get all the apps you need without an issue. So I'm very used to living in a subscription world now. And so it kind of fits my thoughts around buying software. Yeah, setup.com. Awesome. For me, I have kidpix.app. I don't know if anyone who grew up in the 90s might remember kidpix. It was like Microsoft Paint on steroids. And this guy recreated it in JavaScript, not just the visuals. He also has the sounds of each brush and undo button. It's unreal. I played with it for like 30 minutes last night. And I was like, oh, this is nostalgia. Kidpix.app is awesome. Check it out and just let the nostalgia creep in. All right, y'all. Well, that's all I got. See you next time. See ya. Thanks for coming, Logan. Yeah, this was awesome. Thank you both.